This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, exactly five years since the start of the global economic meltdown and just a few weeks since he turned in his government credentials, Neil Wolin, the former Deputy Secretary of the United States Treasury, joins us to reflect on his journey to the highest levels of government. It's a path that took him first to the CIA during Bush 41, to the White House and Treasury during the Clinton years, and back to Treasury in the age of Obama for an encore performance. He's accomplished plenty. The economy perked back to life, but he and Tim Geithner may have got while the getting was good. With questions on who will be the next Fed chair, will the government shut down, and what about the debt ceiling, we'll see how a two-time Treasury man sees the road from here. Then, the message. Richard Wolff has watched the evolution of Team Obama from a front-row seat. His first book on Obama, Renegade, was a New York Times bestseller, and he followed it up with Revival the struggle for survival inside the White House. And now he's out to complete the triptych, the account of how the famed no drama campaign was in many ways tragic for those closest to the president. From the Prudential Building in Chicago, home to the reelect, back to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, where the crises never seem to ebb, we'll ask Richard about the reselling of the president and whether the American people are still buying. But first... To Washington we go, and my old friend of 20-something years, Neil Wolin. When I first met Neil, I was enjoying every minute working for President Clinton on trips aboard Air Force One, focused on what was said and done in public. Neil, with his lawyer's training and CIA background, was handling matters in a much more sensitive way for National Security Advisor Tony Lake. But we had some fun back then and still managed to share some laughs about the old days as we've watched our kids grow from infancy to now our oldest boys about nine years old. Neil, welcome to Polyoptics. Josh, outstanding to be here. It's great to have you. Now, you went back in, Neil. I wasn't happy about it at the time. I wanted to go back with you. But maybe I've been spared some nightmares over the past five years. Now that you're out, do you still wake up in a cold sweat any of these nights? Well, I'm trying to get over that, Josh. Uh, I've been out for two weeks, and I'm starting now to sleep a little bit better, slowly but surely. But it's been a, a very tough, very complicated four and a half years with lots of very uh, complex issues for the president and for his entire team to work on. Toughest moment for you personally? Well, I think that uh, in those early days of 2009, when the economy was still in free fall and the financial markets were completely seized up, we just didn't yet know uh, how we were going to get to the to the better place. And um, the uh, the administration before us, uh, President Bush and Secretary Paulson, Chairman uh, Ben Bernanke, and New York Fed uh, President Tim Geithner had put in place the beginnings of a very uh, important program, but it needed some additional work and of course, this, the uh, the Recovery Act that the president worked so hard to achieve early on in his presidency. But in those early days, I would say in February, March, April of 2009, uh, when we were we felt like we were looking over into the abyss, we just weren't sure how this story was going to turn out. And you are not at that point yet confirmed as Deputy Treasury Secretary. You're at the White House. What's your role at that point? Well, I'd come to the White House as uh, the president's Deputy Counsel for Economic Policy, but very shortly thereafter. Uh, Rahm Emanuel, the chief of staff, had uh, 
essentially sent me over to Treasury to uh, be of help to Tim Geithner, the brand new Treasury Secretary, who didn't have a lot of his appointees yet confirmed. And so I was spending uh, a good portion of every uh, every day with Tim and his team over at Treasury working on uh, the formulation of uh, the financial stability program, beginning to think about what financial regulation should look like going forward, uh, working through the complexities that um, all the controversies over executive compensation brought, and so forth. And so even before I was confirmed, which happened in May of 2009, I was really uh, spending the uh, substantially greater part of my time at Treasury with Secretary Gardner and his crew. Now, Neil, just this week, Ben Bernanke goes out the other day and actually gives a press conference, which if you think about the history of the Fed chairman is sort of an unprecedented thing to do and a a manifestation of the way Bernanke has run this Fed. Uh, Thinking back also to those early months, uh, Secretary Geithner's first few speeches, the one that I I recall uh, in the Treasury, maybe the cash room at the Treasury Department. I mean, you and I over many years have talked about communications and we've talked about maybe the the people who've held the Secretary of the Treasury seat, the the Jim Bakers, Nick Brady's, Bob Rubens, Hank Paulson's. What have you learned uh, that you didn't know early in 2009 about how treasuries, secretaries, and deputy secretaries need to communicate and the importance, really, of polyoptics? Well, I think that what became clear early on from that very, you know, those very first few months and uh, stayed true for the full time that Secretary Geithner was secretary and that I was at the Treasury is the need to communicate and constantly communicate and reassert what you're doing and why and tie it to the relevance of of Americans, why what is happening in that building at the U.S. Treasury and with the kinds of levers that the Treasury uh, can affect with respect to financial markets and financial institutions and so forth is, in the end, hugely relevant to the basic health of the U.S. economy in ways that every American that has bills to pay and uh, wants to have a job and a home and a car and pay for their um, for their college education and so forth. It's it's just so relevant, and one cannot um, do that enough. And so I think sometimes in the in just the overwhelming amount of policy decision making that has to happen, um, one forgets that if you don't connect that to the real everyday lives of people and to, and do that on a very very consistent very accessible basis that you lose kind of the thread or the American people lose the thread of why what you're working on is important and why it matters. Now that you are two weeks out of the Department of the Treasury, able to reflect a little bit more, and as we said at the beginning of our conversation, perhaps sleep in, I want to cover some of the things that are more uh, current in the news, and then we'll go back uh, a little bit more through history. So let's begin with uh, the news this week about a withdrawal from the consideration for Fed Chairman and Larry Summers. As chair of the National Economic Council at the beginning of the president's first term, Lawrence Summers was widely believed to be Mr. Obama's first choice for the Federal Reserve job. But critics faulted Summers for an overbearing attitude, bad decisions on the economy, and insensitivity to women. Today, in a letter to Mr. Obama, Summers said, I have reluctantly concluded that any possible confirmation process for me would be acrimonious and would not serve the interests of the Federal Reserve, the administration, or ultimately the interests of the nation's ongoing economic recovery. So, Neil, one of the senators jumping ship this week was the freshman from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. And you and I have known Larry Summers for a long, long time. You much more, uh, much longer and much more intimately than, than me. But how should the outsiders read sort of Larry taking himself out of the mix and perhaps paving the way for Janet Yellen or for the president to make a different pick? 
Well, I think, um, Josh, we should take him at his word. I think he understood that his nomination was one that was going to be very controversial in the United States Senate and that it didn't ultimately serve the president or himself or, frankly, the uh, the U.S. economy um, for him to uh, continue in, uh, follow along a path that was going to bring all that controversy. And so I think he did um, the difficult thing, but in the end, the thing that uh, proves he's a man of, of real integrity and, and really has his focus on the right things, he decided he would pull himself out. And um, he's an outstanding public servant, an extraordinary um, uh, government uh, senior official. He's done incredible work for two presidents now. And it's a pity that it came to that. But, you know, the president has other uh, outstanding options. And, um, you know, Larry made his judgment. And a Fed under Janet Yellen, based on your knowledge, both of the way the economy works and of, and of Ms. Yellen, what would that be like? Well, she is uh, an outstanding uh, public official in her own right. She is hugely experienced both at the Fed um, here in Washington, the Fed Board of Governors, and at the San Francisco Fed. She was a former chairwoman of the Council of Economic Advisors. She is an outstanding economist, knows the terrain intimately well. And, you know, the president hasn't made a selection yet, but if she were to be his choice, uh, if she were to be his nominee to be the chairman of the Fed Board, um, I think she would do an outstanding job. Now, Neil, as you know, years work around rhythms. We, we're about to have the U.N. General Assembly uh, here in New York next week, the uh, Clinton Global Initiative. And the uh, the week before that or, or usually uh, uh, focuses on the business roundtable gathering in Washington where both the president and, and uh, congressional leadership go and speak to the CEOs uh, who gather in Washington. I want to hear brief clips of President Obama and um, uh, Majority Leader Cantor at the BRT and have you opine on what might come if uh, there is indeed another government shutdown. What we now have is a ideological fight that's been mounted in the House of Representatives that says we're not going to pass a budget and we will threaten a government shutdown unless we repeal the Affordable Care Act. A plan to extend our nation's ability to borrow while delaying Obamacare and protecting working middle-class families from its horrific effects. Now, Neil, I know I, I remind you, you are out of the government. You're free to speak freely. Uh, what do you think of what's going on between Obama and Congress right now? Well, I think it's a horrible shame for the American people that um, we're having such a political set-to over things that are very basic. On the, on the one hand, we're talking about funding the government, on which so many people in America depend so critically um, in so many different ways. And it seems to me that um, that if nothing else, the uh, Congress and the president should be able to get together and to make sure that as of October 1, the government continues to do all of the extraordinarily important things that uh, that it does every single day across the country. And, you know, the second thing is on the debt limit. There's this huge uh, brewing controversy, as there has been in the past, um, including earlier this year and in August of 2011 and many times before that, about whether Congress, having committed the U.S. government to um, expend money, will actually be willing then to have the government pay for it. It's a little bit like whether or not if you uh, charge things up on your charge card, whether when the charge card bill comes, you're going to pay for it, having already um, made uh, clear that you've committed to, to, to doing just that. And so I think uh, this is a moment for um, for cool heads. I think, you know, the the Congress has gotten itself all 
wrapped around various versions of what they would require to do two things that is in everyone's interest, um, that is to say, continue to fund the government and to make sure that we don't, for the first time in our country's 200-plus uh, year history, default on our, uh, on our obligations. Um, and so, you know, uh, we hope, again, that uh, rational minds prevail. It's, it strikes me very complicated here because, as we've seen in the last week, uh, Speaker Boehner and Majority Leader Cantor, who you've, whose piece you've just played, don't even have a consensus within their own caucus about how to proceed with many of the further right-wing members of that caucus wanting to try to uh, create leverage by threatening not to fund the, uh, the president's um, health care uh, legislation. So um, it's hard to know exactly how this is going to play out. Um, but, you know, what, what the president was saying to the Business Roundtable, which is clear, is that the failure to do either of these things would be hugely injurious to our economy. And to let it get to just about when the clock strikes midnight on these issues would also not exactly instill a lot of confidence in our markets or in our consumers or our businesses, all of whom need to continue to move forward with, you know, investing and spending and doing the kinds of things that will continue our path toward further economic growth and the restoration of economy that, um, you know, is, is healthy again. Neil, I want to go back to uh, 2009. At the beginning of our conversation, I asked you what was some of the, what was the toughest moment during, uh, during your last five years, but I want to set it up with um, reminding you, you know, what it might be like for Amy Theobald and I to go down to the uh, Angelica Film Center and see a documentary like Inside Job and the bleak, the bleak scene that was uh, prevalent for so many people back in, in 08 and 09. Just hear a clip from that movie and then let you turn the tables and say, well, what do we do? When the financial crisis struck just before the 2008 election, Barack Obama pointed to Wall Street greed and regulatory failures as examples of the need for change in America. A lack of oversight in Washington and on Wall Street is exactly what got us into this mess. After taking office, Obama spoke of the need to reform the financial industry. We want a systemic risk regulator, increased capital requirements. We need a consumer financial protection agency that we need to change Wall Street's culture. But in its first year, the Obama administration did not enact a single major financial reform. Okay, Neil, so let's go to forward to 2010. Take a little victory lap of some of the things that you feel most proud of. Well, in uh, July of 2010, Congress passed and the president signed, that is to say, uh, legislation was enacted that really substantially overhauls how the financial services industry in our country is regulated. And it did all the things that your little clip talked about. It put in place, uh, for the first time ever, a consumer financial protection agency that's looking after consumers uh, and only doing that. It regulated derivatives in very uh, substantial, comprehensive ways. It required big financial institutions to um, be subjected to much more stringent, much more comprehensive regulation than ever before. It made clear that when a big firm fails, um, it will be broken apart, its management will be replaced, its shareholders will lose money, and the taxpayers will not be on the hook. Uh, it did a whole set of things that um, put us in a better place to deal with crises in the future should they occur, and presumably they will occur. Um, and so it didn't happen in the first year, but I would say that the president pushed uh, quite heroically for this legislation through 2009 and in early 2010. It was a very big, very complicated, very comprehensive legislation that had to overcome an enormous amount of political opposition, largely generated by the industry itself. And he got it over the finish line in ways that I think um, were quite extraordinary, very true to what he originally proposed and to what he 
determined and what we thought were the necessary elements to make sure that we had a financial system that was better insulated from from um, from problems. Neil, let's drill let's drill down to sort of one example, one that I know okay, you know intimately. Uh, that is the insurance giant AIG. You know, when you and I were both at the Hartford, they were uh, the eight hundred pound gorilla, our major competitors, and no one has probably seen under the hood of AIG over the past five years uh, better than you. What has been the the journey and the evolution for a company like AIG from where it stood in November two thousand eight to where it stands today? Well, you know, AIG today is much smaller, much less far-flung, much less risky than it was um, back in 2008 when it really um, experienced enormous problems, problems that if had left, we had left untended uh, would have, uh, we thought, and the administration before us thought, really created a huge problem for the broader uh, financial system and for our economy. And, you know, I think it's important, Josh, to remember here that the reason why the government supported uh, financial institutions in 2008 and 2009 was not because they felt like they needed to help the financial institutions per se, but rather because without a strong financial sector, without a uh, set of banks that can actually help generate economic growth, the broader economy, the real economy, the one that really matters to everyday Americans, would never have gotten to a better place. And we see the counterexample, of course, now in Europe, where um, the governments there have not acted with as much speed and as much force and have not supported their financial sector and required them to reform themselves and to get themselves into a better place. And their economies, of course, are lagging on account of it. And so, um, you know, AIG, we supported it. Uh, it was slimmed down. It made enormous amounts of structural change and reformed how it does its business, uh, really got back to being a core insurance business as opposed to doing these far-flung derivatives trades and having all kinds of other businesses that were risky and not really what, what, uh, was, what their core was about. Uh, it has now been, I guess, th- about more, a little more than three years since Dodd-Frank has passed. A couple weeks ago, I think, Jerry Seib of the Wall Street Journal sat down with Senator Dodd, now chairman of the Motion Picture Association of America. I want to hear a few of the uh, wistful thoughts of Senator Dodd and, and get you to bring us back to trying to pass that bill in the first place. And I'm wondering, as you look back on that and having traveled the road to get to the Dodd-Frank mm-hmm. Reform Act, do you think we've done a lot? Have we done enough to make the system safer? We've done a lot. Um, and, and I hope by the end of this year, at least what I've heard uh, from Jack Lew and others, they really want to get these rules done. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last, the Boca rule. The implementation of implementation your act. get done. And then, of course, you're going to have to test it. I mean, mm-hmm. like anything else, Jerry, I mean, we, we did the best we could, but you're, you know, you're sailing in the dark to mm-hmm. a large extent. When we wrote the two big defail provisions in the bill, the Dodd-Frank legislation, I think we got it right, and there are more and more indications we may have. Mm-hmm. But the ultimate test will be when you're called upon to really make it work. Neil, I remember talking to you about the time that uh, right before passage, and it was just like, you know, one trying to make one member of Congress fall after another and, and, and get behind this bill. Talk about the role that Senator Dodd and, and Congressman Frank played and then what you and Tim had to do to help push this across the finish line. Well, I'd say they both were heroic in getting this legislation over the finish line. It was, as I said, very big, very complicated legislation, and there was opposition 
from all kinds of places. And even within the government, you know, amongst the various regulators, people had different, um, you know, priorities and different areas of focus. And they really did an outstanding job of corralling their members and understanding what was necessary to cobble together the majority that ultimately got the thing over the finish line. We at Treasury and in the administration more generally found, you know, really viewed ourselves as being a resource to them. They had asked for legislative text and for ideas. We presented to them all of that. And then as they needed to you know, uh, move things and to adjust things in order to get something that ultimately would pass into law. We were at their side trying to provide them with assistance and drafting and ideas. And I would say they were both outstanding leaders on a very complicated legislative path. Now, it's easy to think that so much of what you and Secretary Geithner and Larry Summers and President Obama do every day are are these uh, major bits of legislation and the battles that, that continue on to this day. But in fact, you know, the work of the Treasury is so much more wide ranging. And the Deputy Secretary uh, was enlisted for so much of that work. And I want to sort of pivot now in our conversation to some of the things beyond some of these Washington battles that you did and begin with some of your travels and talk about your your meeting with Tanzanian President Jakaya Kikwete and hear a little bit of his uh, comments, I think, when he came to Washington. The, the subject for discussion here is Africa transition and transformation. Well, indeed, one can say that there is transform, transformation taking place in Africa. There is a lot of ample evidence to, to, to that fact. Um, when you look at the social economic life of our people and our nations, in education, in healthcare, in infrastructure development, in agriculture, in manufacturing, and so forth and so on. But much more needs to be done. This is the bottom line. Because there are times when Africa is portrayed as if there is nothing happening. But I'm, I, I'm, I would say the contrary. Neil, you've always been fascinated by Africa, passionate about it. And in this job, you actually had to, to involve yourself in it. What's the Treasury Department doing with Africa? Well, you know, the whole world matters to the Treasury because all these places matter to the global economy. And I think for Africa, we uh, have a very strong focus, both in terms of trying to help them, each of these countries, uh, develop their own uh, macro economies, making sure that we can be of assistance as they think about, you know, how to manage the government parts of their economy, but also to develop thriving private sectors and to help them with infrastructure and with agriculture and with energy projects. And so I spent time in, you know, a dozen or more African countries over the course of my deputy secretaryship, uh, you know, meeting with uh, heads of state and heads of government and finance ministers and central bank governors, as well as folks in the private sector to uh, offer our technical assistance, to give them our advice and our counsel about uh, how to move forward as they um, as they progressed along their uh, macroeconomic growth paths. And also, you know, at Treasury, we also focus on um, illicit finance. And so in certain countries in Africa, I was talking to them about, you know, our efforts to make sure that uh, terrorism finance was uh, something that um, was harder to do in this in this world and that the paths toward um, uh, uh, you know, various uh, terrorist groups and other groups that the U.S. government has identified as being a problem had a harder and harder time accessing funds, uh, which is something we focus on the world over, but including in Africa. 
as a uh, traveling U.S. official uh, overseas working with the, your, lo- your local State Department counterpart, one of your responsibilities, I guess, Neil, upon finishing any trip in Tanzania or elsewhere is to uh, dictate a cable to be sent back to Washington. Was there anything unique about that cable about Kikwete? Well, in the reporting <laughs> cable after I met with President Kikwete, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that a little thing that happened at the end of our meeting, I went and saw the president and we spent about an hour and a half together. At the end of the meeting, I said to him, uh, Mr. President, I understand you're a big basketball fan, and um, I wanted to uh, tell him that you know I had spent some years in Hartford, where uh, a Tanzanian uh, athlete, uh, Hashim Tabit, had played at the University of Connecticut, who had gone on to play in the NBA. And I complimented the president on uh, on his citizens' uh, outstanding play, but also then took the opportunity to ask him uh, who was his favorite team in the NBA. And he paused for a moment and said to me, Ah. Ever since the days of the Airman, I have been a Bulls fan. <laughs> and, uh, of course, being a Bulls fan myself, I wanted to make sure that the reporting cable that ultimately went into the files and uh, uh, was part of the official record of our visit reflected the fact that Pre- President Kikwete of Tanzania is a Chicago Bulls fan. Neil Wolin, former Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, another one of your uh, trips, a little hairier one, brought you to Kabul, Afghanistan. I want to hear a little bit of President Karzai as he met with President Obama recently, but then have you take us back to uh, how the Deputy Secretary makes his way uh, into a one-on-one meeting with the President of Afghanistan. Uh, The President and I discussed today uh, in in great detail uh, all the relevant issues uh, uh, between the two countries. I was happy to see that uh, we have made progress on some of the important uh, issues for Afghanistan. Hey, Neil, it's long been written or speculated that uh, some people in Karzai's family might be some of those people that the Treasury Department would want to crack down on. So what agenda set of issues do you bring into uh, the presidential palace when you go to Kabul? Well, you know, I had met with President Karzai both in Kabul and in Washington in 2009, but in 2011 there uh, was there was clearly a problem, a very big problem with fraud in the biggest bank in Afghanistan that was um, going to cost the Afghan government a huge amount of money, and it was really a test case about whether Afghanistan could deal with its big corruption issues. And so our president, President Obama, had taken note of this. It had been a topic that had gotten a lot of discussion in the U.S. government, and he dispatched me with a handwritten note to go see uh, President Hamid Karzai in Kabul. And I spent about an hour with him, just one-on-one, no one else in the room, uh, and walked him through the problems in this enormous bank of his um, and why we thought it was a big problem and why we thought he needed to take quick and, um, and aggressive action to correct the problem, both for economic reasons and governance reasons with his own country, but also... Uh, to you know, make clear that um, when there were these big uh, complexities, big issues of corruption, uh, that you know we were seen to be helping him try to work his way through. And it was a very interesting meeting. He listened to what I had to say. I walked him through what the issues were, um, and uh, you know, it's it's been an issue that the Afghan government has been grappling with ever since. Um, but it was uh, certainly a memorable conversation as I tried to, uh, with a, you know, with a letter of recommendation, in effect, from the president that I carried with me, walk him through a, a very dicey political and economic problem that he had within his own country. Uh, how were we actually conveyed into Afghanistan? Not the easiest place to uh, grab a flight from Dulles these days. No, I think um, I had a military flight that I took from, uh, from uh, Dubai uh, into Kabul and, uh, and back out. 
And, you know, I, I spent a fair amount of time in my deputy secretaryship tra- traveling to places that were a little dicey, Sana'a, Yemen, and Beirut, and Tripoli, Libya, and Tunis, Tunisia, and, and so forth. So I spent my fair share of time on, on military planes that were taking me in and out on the same day. Um, now, back in Washington, I, I, I've long encouraged you to be bold and go big with the, the things that you and Secretary Geithner uh, might be able to do during your uh, secretaryship and deputy secretaryship. But one thing where I don't think a lot of progress was made was uh, looking at the smaller amounts, the smaller pieces of our currency and making a big change. I want to hear a little bit of a, a funny thing that goes around the internet about the penny. The story of the penny starts in the first U.S. Mint, founded in 1792, which produced these one-cent pieces along with other coins, including the quarter, dime, half-dime, and a mystery coin that we'll get back to later. These pennies of the New Republic were born of 100% pure copper. But two forces conspired to ensure this wouldn't remain the case for long. The value of copper went up, and because of inflation, the buying power of the penny went down. This caused the mint to reduce the amount of copper in pennies, first from 100% to 95%, and then to only 5% copper and 95% zinc. Despite this debasement, in 2006, the value of the metal in older pennies rose above one cent, and suddenly they were worth more dead than alive, so people melted them to sell the raw copper for profit. In a rational, efficient world, the story of the penny would have ended here, with the government realizing that they weren't worth minting and happy that its citizens were removing them from circulation. But instead, the government made melting U.S. coins illegal and continues to manufacture 4 million pennies each year, which is idiotic as it costs the U.S. mint about 1.8 cents to make each one-cent penny. But even if pennies were minted from something more representative of their true value, like plastic or lint, it wouldn't fix the fundamental problem that pennies are bad for people and the economy. So, Neil, after that little tutorial, uh, what about some courage from you and Geithner over the last five years? Well, you know, um, it actually costs about 2.4 cents to make a penny and about 7.5 cents to make a nickel. And uh, it's something that ought to be looked at. You know, the president has actually said publicly, he said it in his campaign in 2008, he said it more recently, that uh, the idea that we're making pennies that cost uh, substantially more than a penny to produce is something that uh, we ought to think long and hard about. And I think that the government will take a good look at it. You know, on the other side of this, there are lots of people in certain states who manufacture and who um, create the little uh, blanks that are made into pennies that have, you know, very vested interests. And so it's not an easy thing to get through Congress. And also, you know, there's a certain iconic nature of uh, the penny and and so forth. Uh, Having said that, you know, I think that other countries have eliminated their smallest uh, kind of currency. The, The Nordics have done it and others. And it's something that absolutely we should take a look at. It's at, at a minimum, it's not economic in terms of the overall position of the U.S. fisc. And uh, as the president said, and as we have looked at at the Treasury, it's something that we ought to consider very carefully. Now, Neil, having completed this most recent round of government service, and I'm not sure if Nicole will allow you to have another one any time in, in the near future anyway, I want to go back to the very beginning. I want to hear a little bit uh, with President Reagan in attendance, William Webster making some comments upon being uh, appointed head of central intelligence. I think it was your first job here from Judge Webster. And then have your thoughts over the span of the decades about some of the leaders that you've worked for and what you've learned. I want to thank you not only for your tremendous help to me throughout the confirmation process and in getting ready for this appearance, but also for your distinguished service as acting director during the past five years, five months. You have always placed this agency and your country first, and I am looking very much forward to working with you in the future. 
That's Judge William Webster talking about Robert Gates, who was deputy secretary and then and was acting secretary until Webster got in. Neil, that was the first guy that you worked for, I guess, in government. Most recently, President Obama, Tim Geithner. Uh, some of the people that you've worked for and some of the lessons you've learned? Well, you know, I've uh, had a really fortunate time, Josh. I, I started, as you noted, uh, working for Judge Webster at CIA. I worked for Bob Gates at CIA when he was the director and then went over to the White House where I worked for Tony Lake while he was National Security Advisor and then the <laughs> Treasury, Bob Rubin, Larry Summers, and then most recently uh, Tim Geithner. And each of those gentlemen have been extraordinary public servants, really role models for me, people who have very different styles in many respects, but each of them had a set of things that were a real treat, a real special honor to uh, observe, to work with, and to and to learn from. And I think, you know, overall, um, public service is a great honor for those like you and I who have had an opportunity to do it. Um, the issues are hugely complicated. They, I think, are um, are important, and just doing a little bit better has all kinds of you know, important um, uh, possibilities. And for me, I think just rolling up my sleeves every day and trying to do the best I can and to keep at it, it requires a certain tenaciousness. Certainly that's true every, you know, more than ever in the political environment in which we find ourselves. And to keep my eye, you know, our eyes on the, on the compasses of integrity, you know, um, uh, and to really try to make sure that um, every day I understand that what I'm working on is connected to something that, you know, the folks back home where I came from in Illinois would understand and think would be um, the kind of thing that would make their lives and our country a, a better place. So having those kinds of um, points on the compass uh, that I can think about every day and that help, you know, guide me as I go through. Neil, the folks back home in Illinois are focused, I think, a little less on you and they more on Jay Cutler finding Marcellus Bennett uh, at the end of the game last week against the Vikings. Let's hear a little bit of that. Bottom of your screen and Marshall in a slot. Third down. Cutler for Martellus Bennett. And it is a touchdown! Big lead throw, big lead catch. Here you're going to see Bennett slip to the outside. That's Chris Cook, a corner. That's not a mismatch with a safety or a linebacker. That's a corner with a great back shoulder throw. Neil, I don't know if you think Jay Cutler's got it for 3-0 and this weekend, but I, we do know that Bill Daly has pulled out of the gubernatorial race, not going to challenge Pat Quinn in the primary. Perhaps you go, Mac, take on Quinn and get your own box at Soldier Field? You know, I'd rather uh, figure out a way to uh, beat Jay Cutler. I must say that was a great clip you played, and uh, for a Bears fan, which I've been for 51 years, it does one's heart an awful lot of good when uh, when they beat the Vikings, especially on the last play of the game. You know, uh, I don't think any politics in my future, Josh, uh, although I think uh, Bill Daly is a great guy, and certainly Illinois is uh, uh, continues to be in need of uh, very strong leadership. There are a lot of challenging issues. Uh, for me at the moment, you know, uh, I think my public service is uh, has come to uh, a halt, and I'm going to spend some time with my kids and my wife and reconnect, and uh, and then I'll sort it out from there. Neil Wallen, former Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, service to the United States government uh, going back to the CIA in the 1980s. Thanks so much for joining us in Polyoptics today. Thanks for having me, Josh. A real pleasure. One thing Neil and I didn't get to talk to was his fondness for 70s TV shows. So after the break, it's Richard Wolff, author of The Message, the reselling of President Obama. But for now, it's all Starsky and Hutch.
politics of the United States for the people of the United States. This is POTUS. Sirius XM 124. So as I mentioned before the break and at the top of the show, we are very pleased to have with us Richard Wolf, the author of The Message, the reselling of President Obama. This his third book on Barack Obama, the first being Renegade and then Revival uh, when President Obama got to the White House. Richard, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I first start with the polyoptic angle because everyone's got to sell a book, right? So I remember your previous Mm -hmm. volumes. This Mm -hmm. one fascinatingly has this washed out billboard with the old Hope uh, Mm -hmm. banner on it. How did you come about to this artwork for the cover? Is this an actual billboard? You know, I actually don't know the history of where the image came from, but it, it came from some genius editors at 12, my new publisher, and, uh, you know, it really captured, we thought, the the challenges they faced. Because, you know, th- this isn't about uh, the voters so much as what the campaign headquarters had to deal with. So uh, it's a real billboard. I don't know if they tweaked around the coloring a little bit, though. Well, it's very effective from the from the visual standpoint. And yep. That's where, I, where my mind always gravitates. But my mind also gravitates to sort of the book writing process. And as I read your book and tried to come up with some other uh, bits of sound that we might play during our conversation, I was drawn probably to the same bit of YouTube that you uh, have with Messina as the book begins. Let's hear a little bit of, of Jim Messina welcoming President Obama to Chicago headquarters. Ladies and gentlemen, the re-elected president of the United States. So, you guys, I, uh, you know, I I try to picture myself uh, when I was your age, and I first moved to Chicago uh, at the age of 25, and I had this vague inkling about making a difference. Richard Wolf, that is uh, President Obama, I think, a day or two before or after. The the next day, the day after the election night. So, first of all, as an author... Uh, this is your third book on Obama. Mm-hmm. How much are you aided by some of these postings of behind-the-scenes video? Yeah. Because you talk about Messina's fist pump, mm-hmm. which I saw so clearly, and yet, you know, it was a throwaway fist pump. How, right. how is it to write this book? So th- this book was uh, a different from uh, the others in many ways. Um, you know, the first book in Renegade, it- it's very different when someone doesn't expect to be president and you're with them from the start. You have, you- you're with them all day. You know, the life of a candidate is is very, very public. And um, so that's different. When they get to become president, the whole Secret Service thing is something they can hide behind. It isn't just a security wall. It's a place they retreat to. And in the White House, the White House book was, um, you know, I could be physically present for some of that. But this campaign was all over the place. It was in Washington. It was in Chicago. uh, And I was in all places, too. But there's no center of gravity as there is in a first campaign where you're on the plane. So what happened in the middle of uh, actually early on in this book project was that the White House uh, was extremely annoyed, in fact, angry as hell that there were early leaks of some of their most sensitive strategy meetings to book authors. So the president said, basically, that's it. I'm done with this. We're not doing any books. And that was a challenge uh, because, you know, I told him at the time, 
having a no book policy is a bit like having a no TV policy or a no newspaper policy. I mean, for a start, it's collective punishment. And secondly, it's totally unenforceable. They said, we know, look, we're going to do a lot of reconstruction with you. So uh, this book leaned to, there are, there are events where I'm physically present and I'm with them and the players and everything in the moment. Yeah. And then a lot of it is the reconstruction. These kinds of, to come to your question, these kinds of web video helps a lot with the reconstruction, but you can't rely on them. So it, they, it, what I learned was, yes, there was the video, but the president spent hours. He spent longer that day in the headquarters than he had spent for the entire rest of the campaign put together. And he shook every single person's hand, people he'd never spoken to before or ever would again, from the lowliest kid volunteer all the way up to the top level of the campaign. And he spent time with each and every one of them. And it came back to a point for him which I make in the book, going back to one of my first interviews with him on the campaign plane, that he was more passionate about changing the process, about changing the nature of politics than about an individual policy. That's how much of a wonkish community organizer he is. And, and I just thought it was such a strong sort of thread that I opened the book with, uh, as I did with Renegade, election day, election night, and in this case, tipping forward into one of those very, very rare moments where this president shows some public emotion. That is extraordinarily rare. And you're talking about this president, and yet here in the message, the reselling of President Obama, it is so much more about the small circle of communications Mm -hmm. aides and campaign managers, and we'll talk about them in sequence. And let's begin with that guy who introduces President Obama at headquarters that day because you do open the book on him, and it's Jim Messina. Mm-hmm. And so paint a picture of this campaign manager, triumphant to all outside appearances, mm-hmm. and yet he is barely holding on to various uh, tentacles of power that he's been right. given by both the president and David Plouffe. Yeah, so a campaign manager really is the central figure, as you know. They, they, they're supposed to be sort of lord of all they survey, and everyone looks up to them and a great strategic mind and everything else. And Jim Messina has many qualities, but his real uh, his hold on that job rested on being the right hand guy of David Plouffe. That's what he came into the '08 campaign being a sort of enforcer figure. Um, so I start out with a story about him where he enters the '08 campaign headquarters, this very sort of collegial, but some sort of really a scrappy place that emerged unexpectedly out of the primaries. And he comes in and David Plouffe hands the whole thing, the day-to-day operations over him, by saying, here's a list of people I want you to fire. And and, Messina tells me the story. And I'm like, well, that's your introduction to all of these people? I said, what did you do? He said, I fired them. And that's the kind of person Jim Messina is, right? He is, he's an enforcer. He draws his strength and power and authority from especially David Plouffe, who I really think was managing this campaign from the White House. But that leads to all sorts of tensions and pressures that the book gets into. So when you go back as a campaign book to looking at how they won, how did they pull this thing off? I was just struck by the extraordinarily bad mood, spirit, atmosphere that comes out of this figure, Jim Messina, his relationship with the core people around him. Yes, he's an enforcer. He can fire people, and you need some of that. But at what cost? And and they, uh, I, you know, the book is really saying, yes, they overcame the challenge of an incredible, an incredible economy, an economy working against them. They overcame the challenge of all of that Republican money, but they also had to overcome the challenge of themselves. 
and and a figure like Jim Messina, who really, I mean, it w- it was hard to find people in the campaign who would say good things about Jim Messina, and and that's not what I was looking for. I didn't say, oh, I really want to find the dirt on Jim Messina, but you'd never know, right? You'd never know from the coverage. You'd never know from the web video. You'd never know because they kept such a good lid on it. Well, that's what was so interesting about the way you talked about the exits of Robert Gibbs and David Axelrod, which I consider myself fairly well plugged in, but I consider them having burned out and moved on precisely the way the story was rolled out to me. And yet you tell me, no, that's not true. They were really pushed out and pushed out of the circle Mm -hmm. well before their time. I want to go back to a happier time, a time where you were with uh, Senator Obama full-time. That day after Grant Park, or that night in Grant Park in Chicago 2008, there's Steve Croft, and he's introducing what this story is all about. When Barack Obama began thinking about running for president two years ago, he turned to a small inner circle of political advisors from his 2004 Senate campaign. Like Obama, they were talented, laid back, and idealistic, with limited exposure on the national stage. But with the candidates' help, the team orchestrated one of the most improbable and effective campaigns in American political history. They took a little-known senator with a foreign-sounding name in almost no national experience and got him elected the 44th president of the United States. Before we get to David Oxrod, David Pluff, and Robert Gibbs, uh, Richard Wolff, how did you come about to go from your prior assignments at Newsweek to getting on the Obama for President campaign and really the the book writing and reporting track that it's taken you since? It, by the way, that, that Steve Croft interview will always stand out for me because uh, one of the things they told me when they came off was that it, it was election night and they all had these mugs which normally have water in them or tea or whatever. Uh, in that case, it was beer in those mugs. So they, they were they were celebrating with Steve well, Croft you, on on everything. That's and you have this story. fabulous mini bar vignette from 2012 <laughs> too, yeah, which that's... I will save for book readers. <laughs> we won't get into. Alcohol is a running theme here. So um, how did I get on this journey? Uh, Newsweek was uh, was looking towards the 2008 election. We had a new editor at the time of the magazine. I'll be honest with you. Um, I had been I, I had been uh, recruited uh, to Newsweek. By the previous editor and so I was kind of on the outs at Newsweek and um, I was the senior White House correspondent and I was on MSNBC but uh, they were going to give the plum assignments to someone else and the plum assignments in 2007 late 2006 were Hillary Clinton Rudy Giuliani if you can believe that yep. John Edwards Michael Hastings got the Giuliani gig right and so I said I'm not interested in any of those guys I really don't. I'm interested in this this guy, Barack Obama, who I hadn't given any credence to a few months earlier, but my Democratic friends, campaigning people, donors were saying, you really got to look out for this guy. In fact, there were Hillary Clinton people who were telling me, you got to look out for this guy. So that's when I knew it was real. And I read his book and I was fascinated by him. I thought, win or lose, this is going to be an incredible journey. And I spent time in early 2000s, for a start, the Newsweek people said, "Great, we got rid of we got rid of this guy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we've you know we finally edged him out Back of the water of the in Chicago. Who where the hell is that? This Barack Obama guy is going to go nowhere." And I kept going back to them and saying, "Well, I've met this guy David Pluff, and honestly, he's one of the most talented people in campaign policies I've ever met anywhere. And I'd covered a few campaigns by then. They've got a real plan. And and look at the look at the map. Look at the the timetable of these states. If they pull off Iowa." they're going to have a slingshot because of the sequencing of these 
primaries and caucuses and and so I traveled to Iowa and of course it was a different story in Iowa it wasn't the national story they were everywhere and they were connecting and he was there all the time and Hillary Clinton wasn't and I um, so I kept going back to the Newsweek guys saying this is real this is real this is going to happen you got to pay attention and they kept like yeah whatever you stupid foreigner you don't know anything and um Right up until the, the week of the caucuses, Newsweek was not going to even feature this guy. Uh, they weren't going to, they weren't going to put the Iowa caucuses on the cover. And of course, he won, and there was the speech. And that night, they went, "Oh, I guess you were shit. right. Well, you got to write a cover tonight." And that started this long journey. And I'll be honest with you. Uh, about a month after that, um, Obama himself said to me, uh, "You know, you should write a book." And I said, ah, no one reads campaign books anymore. Uh, you know, they haven't been printed for a long time and none of them worked. And he said, yeah, but I love the Teddy White series, so you should do that. And I said, no, that's a really stupid idea. Um, and he looked really kind of downtrodden. I said, you don't understand. You, you don't understand book publishing the way I do. Come on, he's a bestseller. He's got two <laughs> under his belt that have done very well. Yeah, so then I started talking to people and they told me I was an idiot. And so, uh, yes, it led to Renegade. And these other books, and Renegade uh, did pretty well. And so um, uh, one book leads to another. You get addicted. So we're still with Steve Croft uh, on election night somewhere uh, backstage, Grant Park or wherever he's doing the interviews. And it's interesting because that segment introduces the three three of the other main characters in your book. And I want to hear how they described their feeling in 2008. The group included David Axelrod, Obama's chief strategist and political alter ego, and David Pluff the camera-shy campaign manager and field general who made it all happen. Yeah, it's been a 22-month road and uh, a lot of twists and turns. But, uh, you know, I think he filled the stage tonight. There was senior aide Robert Gibbs, who was always at Obama's side, his former and future press secretary. It was uh, fun to watch all the people come out who have been part of the campaign. And uh, <clears throat> uh, Robert's our spokesman. <laughs> Richard Wolf, three men, three yeah. character arcs in the message. What happens to the three of them as in the pages of your book? So uh, someone told me right in the middle of that group that they'd never, that in all the time through the 08 campaign, they'd only ever seen one face-to-face argument among any of these people uh, through the whole campaign. And this time around, very different scenario. There were face-to-face arguments happening all the time. David Pluff and David Axelrod were business partners. That's how Pluff came into the circle. And uh, Pluff was really the dominant figure in the White House, the dominant figure in the uh, the 2012 campaign. And he was really pulling the levers from the White House through this intermediary, Jim Messina, who very few people had respect for, even though he had the position of authority. So Axelrod and Messina were clashing all the time, all the time. And Axelrod basically ran his own thing independently of the campaign manager. David Plouffe was at a remove with the candidate, with the president in the White House, so really pulling the strings. And and Robert Gibbs, who who was really part of the family in yeah. sense of how much time, you know, the, these people who travel from the very beginning, they really become uh, a Springfield, confidant. Illinois, 2007. And, you know, he had hoped to become a Pluff or an Axelrod, a senior advisor in that office right next to the Oval Office, the, you know, much more than a press secretary. And he, he kind of was more than a press secretary, but really to have that 
singular position of strategic advisor. And what he ended up having happening was being really excluded completely. Now, the president didn't push him off the payroll. He kept him on the payroll, but that was pretty much it. He was drawing $15,000 a month as a campaign advisor, wasn't in Chicago, jumped on a couple of calls, really didn't do very much. Very interestingly, though, when the president was really in trouble, there was only one moment he was really in trouble after in this the campaign. Debate. After the debate, he calls in Robert Gibbs. Where was Gibbs's misstep? I mean, you re- read in Jody Cantor's book about clashes with uh, with um, Valerie Jarrett or others. I mean, what what gets Gibbs off the track? Well, it's Gibbs and Axelrod, right? They they both pushed out into the sort of uh, into the outer circle, and you know, and that may be familiar for anyone who understands the Clinton White House. I mean, yeah. that used to happen all the time, but it's not supposed to happen with these Obama people, right? There was such a s- strong team, and that's what was surprising to me in, in, in reporting out this book. What happened with Gibbs was it, the same with Axelrod, which is you got a brutal first term. Yeah. Terrible economy, Republicans coming back to power, and, and, and the deadlock and the, and the grind, the daily grind of, of that no visual to, guy. No visual guy. No means of communicating other than to have the principal, yeah, give the president, speech. give a speech. Yep. And and they weren't clear about their message. They were, you know, to this day, they're struggling to communicate what health care reform yep. is. To this day, people don't believe that the Recovery Act created jobs, even though every other, every serious economist out there knows that it had a big impact. They lost the message war from day one. And... And in the end, the president, the first lady, anyone who with any seniority had to say, the message isn't working. And the people who took the fall for that were Robert Gibbs and David Axelrod. And, you know, I would say their messaging in the campaign was a lot more focused. Easier to. Easier to because you're backing it up by hundreds of millions of dollars as well. But look at them now. Look at the White House now. The only person who gave the message discipline in the White House is David Pluff, and he's not there anymore, and it shows. Yeah. Enter another character, a female, someone that I've known going back to the mid-90s, Stephanie Cutter, worked for so, worked in the Clinton White House, worked for Senator Ted Kennedy, uh, worked, uh, had a uh, very challenging experience in the 04 campaign working for John Kerry. Um, and in my, to my eye, again, total outsider, incredibly innovative in this campaign. I want to hear one of her patented videos from Chicago. Hi, I'm Stephanie Cutter, Deputy Campaign Manager at Obama for America. Well, here we are again. Karl Rove's group, Crossroads, is spending $25 million from secret donors to tear down the president in a new ad out today. Time to tear this thing apart. First up, the attack ad says the president has not helped people who face foreclosure. That is flat out wrong. Because of President Obama's policies and the efforts he set in motion, over 5.9 million homeowners were able to modify their mortgages, avoid foreclosure, and stay in their homes. So Richard Wolf Cutter has some sharp elbows, not only for Mitt Romney, but for some of her colleagues in Chicago. Yeah, when she says she's tearing something down, (laughs) I mean, that's how she does. That's how she treats her external opponents. That's how she treats her internal opponents as well. She's um, uh, she is abrasive and effective, supremely effective. I mean, you definitely want her on your side at any time. But what happens is she turns her fire on Jim Messina. She even occasionally turns it on David Axelrod, which is ironic because David Axelrod has been her biggest promoter and and mentor. Um, But they clash. She clashes with everyone. She clashes with her own team. And, you know, the very qualities that make us such a fighter and, and so good at taking the fight to Republicans, 
puts her in a very isolated position in her own team. By the way, a bit of a backstory on those digital videos. Yeah. The TV team, the old media team that's part of David Axelrod's world, hated all of those videos. They thought that Stephanie Cutter, yeah, she was popular with the base. Democrats loved her. They weren't trying to reach Democrats. They were trying to reach infrequent voters. They were trying to reach independent voters, swing voters, moderates. That was the key, co- the, the key group they were looking for. There was nothing moderate about Stephanie Cutter's videos. So she fired up the base, and the old media team kept on saying, you're, doing, you're freelancing. You're, you're, you're messing up the message. You're not reaching the right people. What, and calling a, your opponent a felon is freelancing? Or Yeah, yeah that, that was a problem for her, right? And so that leads to a situation where they hatch a plot to fire her, the single highest profile woman on the campaign. And they take the decision as the senior people, Messina and Pluff, and they actually meet at a White Sox game. By the way, a bunch of guys at a baseball game. Oh, my God. And, and they decide, that's it, we're going to fire her. And they don't have the balls to tell her. They all so they say, well, who's going to tell her? And they all wimp out. That tells you so much about the culture, about the management, about their ability to do difficult things. Well, it says some other things, too. First of all, I've known her for a long time. I think she created a new kind of weapon this mm-hmm. year that I've been thinking about for a long time, which is the candidate's own TV network mm-hmm. and her ability to get on reacting to the news of the of the hour and have that spread virally through uh, online videos. You know, the next incarnation of Stephanie Cutter might be one with, with a, a softer edge mm-hmm. who could also do the uplifting stuff. Mm-hmm. But to have a person who's photogenic and always there I mean, what was was Jim Messina going to do that? I mean, if you didn't have Stephanie Cutter in yeah. 12, you would have had to invent her anyway. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't just her, but she was effectively sort of editing the digital video team. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of these people. They had the kind of newsroom that actually most media organizations dream of right now. And there were all these kids running around creating videos, which they were pushing out basically through Facebook and, use, and YouTube. And... That was tremendously effective because um, what they were doing there wasn't just getting their message out directly to to their voters and supporters. They wanted something to share. You needed to be able to build a network. You call it the sort of the sort of broadcast their own network, but their network was in social media. And yeah, you could ask someone to go vote or register to vote. But before the big day, you had to make those connections happen. And they made those connections happen with these kinds of videos. So they would post up a piece of video and say, go share this with your friends. And then they'd be able to track, well, who are your friends? And how, where does this lead us? And identify the friends of friends who may be infrequent voters who would show up to vote if they had the right pressure and the right message. So that's, that's a real innovation. Yeah. This was a Facebook campaign. So Michael Hastings, late Michael Hastings, alluded a little bit to the the cutter problem. Lebo has talked a little bit about this. You have done it uh, more than I think any place that I've read, and I can't imagine anyone having anything else to say after <laughs> after the message. But how's Stephanie taking this bearing of of what had been carefully put behind closed doors? Well, I think her reaction has been the same as a lot of the others. There is a. Uh... Uh, they they are still very um, engaged with their personal battles. So um, the, I, I, look, they're private emails, so I can't I can't read them out to you. But the spirit of them is very much uh, a sense of feeling wronged, not by my book, but by these other people. 
and a desire to continue those fights. I mean, again, you know from the Clinton years, these things have a very long life in yeah. terms of the personal sort of animus. And, uh, you know, Stephanie's done very well for herself. She's got a show on CNN. She's got a great platform. Um, I've encouraged her to express <laughs> publicly what she's expressed to me privately because she has a perspective. She was a player in it. It's all true. Um, she actually says she didn't know about the plot itself, but she suspected it was there. Yeah, I, w I might give her some different advice. I'd say New Day, CNN, you've got your own show. You, you uh, uh, Thank God for, uh, for Jeff Zucker. He's created a great platform for you and go forth and conquer. Um, let's, let's change to, from a little bit the personalities to, again, the other part of the message, which is developing a, a paid ad campaign and both the the sort of positive uh, image building stuff and the, the stuff designed to break Mitt Romney down. I want to begin with uh, Brian from Ohio. The auto industry was crashing down. I was scared to death. I had a newborn baby, wife, house, and I got laid off. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Under the president's auto rescue plan, the industry restructured, saving over one million jobs. Obama stuck his neck out for us, the auto industry. He wasn't going to let it just die. And I'm driving in this morning because of that, because of him. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. David Axelrod, uh, Jim Margolis, Larry Grizzolano, what's going on here, Richard Wolf, to, to create yeah. this new positive message for the president's reelect? So there's a, so much work that goes into something like that. Um, and, and, and a lot of internal debate and strife around how much could they say the president had done? Um, they, you really want to, in a situation like this, do morning in America. I mean, they, they all, that's the sort of the, the playbook you'd want to run at this point is that the country has come back. And there was a lot of internal debate, a lot of polling, a lot of research and focus grouping. They knew they couldn't quite say that. Could, say, could they say the country is coming back? How could they talk about the, what they called the accomplishments, the president's accomplishments? And in the end, they come up with a, a sort of roundabout way. They figured out that they, could, they needed to talk about the accomplishments. They needed to say the president did something, but he couldn't say it himself. That the most effective way to do any of this stuff, whether it was speaking about the president's record or speaking about Mitt Romney was to use other people's voices. So it's a recognition there that actually the president himself was not the best spokesperson. This auto worker could say it's because of him. The president could say it's because of you, but he could never say it's because of me because that didn't fit with the mood. And so when they focus group, and they focus group everything, I mean, they, you know, they focus group. They burned when, up a lot of dollars on testing centers. Right. And so... This ad was a spin-off of a bigger ad, which was the foundational ad, an ad called Go, um, where it talked about, it reminded people. One of the challenges they had was that people had forgotten how bad it was. And actually, they forgot how much they hated the auto bailout. If you'd said at the time of the auto bailout that the president would run for re-election and the auto bailout would be a centerpiece of his re-elect, you'd say that was crazy. It was deeply, deeply unpopular. Those auto people were hated. The, the executives flew in on their jets to Washington. Everyone hated the bailout. And yet, when it came round to it, they could repackage it as being a gutsy move. And so they needed to remind people how bad it was. They needed to remind people that the president took a decision, but they needed someone else to say, thank you, 
Obama. Thank you, Mr. President. And that was Brian. And so uh, because things do derive from go, that Brian is the positive message. Let's hear the the netherworld and the, the stage ad. Right. Out of the blue one day, we were told to build a 30-foot stage. Gathered the guys, and we built that 30-foot stage, not knowing what it was for. Just days later, all three shifts were told to assemble in the warehouse. A group of people walked out on that stage and told us that the plant is now closed and all of you are fired. I looked both ways. I looked at the crowd and uh, we all just lost our jobs. We don't have an income. Mitt Romney made over a hundred million dollars by shutting down our plant and devastated our lives. Turns out that when we built that stage, it was like building my own coffin and it just made me sick. Priorities USA Action is responsible for the content of this advertising. Bill Burton, Priorities USA, yep. building your own guillotine. Richard Wolff, uh, even the musical signatures tell you it's a totally different message. <laughs> right. So it was an outside group. Um, it was the single most effective ad that they ever tested. It wasn't the campaign's ad, but they were testing it anyway. Um, because there can't be any coordination whatsoever. Apparently so. Um you know, it was it was certainly in line with the main track at that point of the Obama campaign's own ad. So they had a long track. First of all, they went after Mitt Romney about his Massachusetts record as governor. Then they went after him on Bain, on the job side of things, and then Bain and him as a director and as a wealthy guy. But in terms of the jobs piece of it, they had a multi-week attack where they were actually spending more money. I mean, they were outspent for most of the campaign, but in this early definitional phase, they were spending more money defining Mitt Romney than Romney and his allies anywhere across the field because he was still coming out of his primaries. This ad uh, this ad was very, very powerful and memorable. I actually think the God Bless America ad was the most successful one that the Obama campaign had. That was, I don't know if you've got this teed up, but no. it's... It's Mitt Romney singing. I've covered it so many times on this show. I keep going back to that. Mitt Romney singing, and that's really the whole thing. But this ad was was very powerful. They actually, looking back, when they did that sort of post-mortem, the Obama people thought it was was a missed opportunity that Priorities USA did not have the money to have more airing of that because it was so powerful. It really actually moved the needle for them. Yeah. Not that they had to move the needle that much, because as you point out over and over again, and I think this is true in 2008 too, the uh, the competition was not very strong in 2012. No, it wasn't very strong. And by the way, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars. Both sides spent about a billion dollars, a billion dollars. I mean, it's grotesque amounts of money. And the poll numbers almost didn't move. I mean, they fluctuated within a range of one or two points. The high point for them was really a low point for Mitt Romney. That was the 47% video. But overall, it was an incredibly stable race. The president starts out with a two or three point lead and ends with a two or three point lead. Obviously, there are fluctuations in between, but it makes you wonder the ads, all the money, was it? It's like a zero sum game. It's the classic Cold War situation where you have these superpowers spending all this time and energy and money and and nothing really moves. Um, so, yeah, like the... The ads were important. They put a huge amount of effort into them. Uh, 
you never know if you didn't spend the money, you could have been completely murdered, right? And and certainly defining Mitt Romney early, spending their money early was very, very effective for the Obama folks. But that early advantage was erased later on. So the battleground, if you talk to Joel Benenson, I mean, the Obama's pollster, Uber pollster, you find that really this race didn't move at all. They were better at targeting some of those finding those infrequent voters and getting the message to them. Um, and that was important for turnout. But polling-wise, the battleground states, they look the same at the start as the end. And, you know, it's 2012 is already, that election is al- already almost a year in the rearview mirror. We've talked about a lot of personalities in our conversation. We've talked about Messina, Axelrod, Gibbs, Pluff. Uh, there's one left, and, and, and Stephanie Cutter, and that's Dan Pfeiffer, who, if you look at the current makeup of the West Wing staff, is maybe the guy who's still home alone, back with my friend Jennifer Palmieri. Let's hear a little bit of Pfeiffer from this week uh, doing the Sunday morning routine. You and others have said that no one in the White House knew about IRS actions before getting the heads up on the Inspector General's report last month. Are you absolutely sure of that? Uh, yes, that, that is, that's what uh, we've looked at. That's what we know. That's the first we've heard of it. And, you know, as, as it's been said, the uh, the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury was made aware just of the fact that the investigation was beginning last year, but no one in the White House was aware. And it's important to know what we, what we actually knew, which is just that there was an investigation that was coming to conclusion, not that we knew the results. We didn't see the report until uh, it was released last Wednesday. Richard Wolf, once a reporter, always a reporter, so you can't put your pencils down when you finish off writing no. the message, the reselling of President Obama. Here's Dan Pfeiffer, the president's counselor, former communications director, and we even saw this week, and I watched you on Morning Joe, sort of a little bit of head-scratching after the shooting at the Washington Navy Yard. Where is this president today, and, and what what does it foretell for the next three years? I, I think that most people look at him now and say, where's the great communicator that we saw in the campaign? Where is that message, focus, and discipline? You know, you come out after the Navy Yard shooting, and instead of expressing the grief of the nation and talking about something behind it, you have a few comments about it and then pivot into talking about the debt ceiling. I mean, that that's just, uh, as, as David Axelrod would say, that's like uh, professional misconduct, right? You know, that's malpractice. And, and, and so I think they have lost a focus and a discipline. They're going to have to build their way out of it like they did out of the first debt ceiling mess, which took them several months of saying, pass this bill, we can't wait, the job speech. They have to map a long-term strategy out of this. It's not going to be overnight at this point. Syria was, again, you know, they said we want to send a message to the Syrians, and they sent every conceivable message to the world. We're going to rush to war. We're not going to rush to war. You have a primetime address where he's saying, this is why we're going to take action, but actually I'm not going to take any action. And that rush was very uncharacteristic. There's nothing wrong with being deliberative. People voted for this president because he was more deliberative than President Bush especially about foreign policy. But you can't show that. You can't show your mind moving when it comes to projecting American power, especially if you are saying, here's a red line. So I I do think they've lost focus. Uh, Dan Pfeiffer uh, is a very talented guy at this point, very experienced. He's been with the president from the very beginning. Um, You know, one of the curious things in this campaign and administration is that you normally would see people who had been successful in the campaign getting plum jobs in administration because they've worked hard, but also because they're a fresh pair of eyes and some fresh blood. 
That didn't happen this time around. There were elements of the message that were really triumphant out of the campaign. Everyone splintered. There were elements of the ground game that were completely, you know, revolutionary. Every campaign in the future will try and do the same kind of thing they did. They say we're going to keep the campaign structure going, but actually all the people who ran that ground game splintered off. And so OFA, Organizing for Action, was no match for the NRA just a few weeks after the election on the issue of gun control. That's crazy. You had all these people mobilized and energized. You have an outrage like the massacre at Newtown, and they couldn't translate that into grassroots action. And that's because the key people left. And you have good people in communications, experienced people, but they're struggling right now. And I, I think at some point, there has they they'll be the clear out that there normally would be at the start of any second term. Well, Richard Wolf, the author of the message, the reselling of President Obama. I hope that when the fourth volume comes out, <laughs> well, uh, it will have a more uplifting and triumphant ending for for the president's sake. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual. Think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.